Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. Realm Presents Bullet Catcher, Season 1, Episode 7. One. Once, many months ago, before we traveled to Los Casadores, before Nico came back into my life and everything changed, the Bullet Catcher told me that most people don't understand what a gun is until they've killed with it. The frightening thing, he said, is how easy it is. We arrive in Las Pistolas after a few days' ride from the bruise, where we had rested and regrouped with Nico's gunslingers after the shootout with the bullet catcher. Las Pistolas is a city, the first I've seen. Nico tells me that it was once a booming water town, but when the wells ran dry, the people left, everyone except those too old or young or sick, to make it somewhere new. But when the gunslingers started to organize, they made the town their headquarters, and it grew. The old buildings were patched and reinforced. The town grew out, but also up. Now it looks like several cities stacked on top of one another. The buildings are a hodgepodge, like a child's play blocks. Metal stairs wind up from one level to the next, and across each story stretches a floating metal boardwalk affixed to the sides of the buildings. They creak and groan with foot traffic, and let down sheets of trapped sand on the people below. The sound of machines is everywhere, humming electricity, whirring engines, firing pistons, white steam, black smoke. An airless, oil-slick sky hangs above the town, but the city teems with life, and that makes it beautiful. We dismount our horses and stable hands lead them away. I wait, standing in the middle of the street. I endured months and months of routine with the bullet catcher, of knowing exactly what was expected of me every hour and minute. Now that's all gone, and I don't know what to do or where to go. Where is the bullet catcher now? What is he doing? 
Does he hate me for what I did? On the ride, Nico asked me what I thought of the bullet catcher, and I lied and told him I didn't think anything. Now I wait for Nico, who is ordering around a couple of gunslingers. When he's done, he comes over to me, wraps his arms around my shoulders, and says, I have a surprise for you. He leads me to a large building. The entrance is made of huge marble blocks. A man in a smart uniform opens the glass door for us and stands aside to let us in. He gives a half bow to Nico and says, Pleasure to see you again, sir. Nico smiles at him as we pass. At the other side of the large open lobby is a bank of elevators. I only know them from books. An operator leans against the open gate to his elevator, smoking and reading a creased paperback. When he sees Nico approaching, he snaps to attention, pockets the book, and forces a smile. Good afternoon, sir, he says with an exaggerated salute. Nico nods to him, and we board the elevator. The operator closes the gate and pulls a lever. A jolt runs through the compartment and up into my belly, and we shoot upward. I cling to Nico, and he stifles a small laugh. Are these things safe? Perfectly, he says. Don't worry, you'll get used to it. You'll get used to all of it. The operator opens the gate at the top floor, ten stories up. I have never been in a building so tall. The elevator opens right into the largest apartment I've ever seen. All yours. What do you mean, all mine? I mean, it's yours, your new home. It was mine, well, one of mine, but I want you to have it. I go from room to room, from the bedroom to the sitting room to the kitchen and bathroom. There is a feather bed and plush couches, a writing desk, shelves overflowing with books, beautiful carpets atop polished wood floors. There is a clawfoot tub. I turn the tap on. I turn it off. I cut my hands under the spout and fill them with the warm, crystal clear water. How? It comes through pipes buried in the ground. But where from? He laughs. I just told you, through pipes. Yeah, but where do those pipes lead? The humor drains from his face. He seems to examine me, suspiciously. But then he laughs it off and says, It comes from nowhere special. I give him a cockeyed look, but when I see he won't tell me more, I let it drop, for now. I leave the taps on, letting the bath slowly fill, and head into the study, where leather-bound books clutter the shelves all the way to the ceiling. I read the spines of ones here and there. Nico pulls a book from the shelf. It's a worn leather journal, small enough to fit in a breast pocket, bound with a leather strap. He presses it into my hands. What's this? It was Dad's. What? Where did you find it? Doesn't matter where. I have it. And I want you to have it. Because it explains everything. When Nico leaves, I sit on the ledge of the porcelain tub with the journal in my hands, 
and watch the basin fill slowly with hot water. Steam billows through the open bathroom door. I untie the strap binding the journal, but I don't open it. Not yet. When I think about reading my father's words, my heart starts to race. I'm not ready. I put the book aside, undress, and settle into the water slowly. I've never had a bath like this. My skin prickles in the heat. My bruises melt. My muscles unclench. My eyes soften and close. And again, my mind drifts to thoughts of the bullet catcher. Is he safe, like me? Is he warm, like this? But no matter how I hope, I know the answer to both those questions is no. The most I can hope for is that he's alive. And then that terrible thought reoccurs to me, that the bullet catcher must hate me, like he hates Nico. Will he return to kill us both? In this bath, at the top of this tall building, away from the heat and pain of the desert, a part of me feels like I deserve it, for betraying him. I sit at the edge of my bed with the journal in my hands. I've been sitting here maybe ten minutes, not moving, holding the book. I want to read it, but I'm afraid. Not about what it may tell me about my father, but how I know it'll make me miss him, and mom, and the life we used to have. I rub my thumb over the worn leather. The letters E-M are etched into the cover with a knife. E-N. Emiliano Moreno. The name of my father. I untie the strap and open to a random page. Polvo. Thursday. Susana's pregnant, it reads. I'm going to be a father. Gods, give me the smarts to know what to do. I snap the journal closed and push it under my pillow. I can't. I'm not ready. I catch a glimpse of something out of the corner of my eye. Through the window, in the streetlight and moonlight, the shadow of a figure stands on the roof of the building across the street, several floors below mine. I go to the window to get a better look. The figure doesn't move to hide. It stands and watches. Then it turns and dissolves into a pool of darkness spread out along the rooftop. It couldn't have been, I think to myself. No, it was nothing but a trick of the eye. Two. A knocking wakes me early. I scramble awake, reaching for my gun, but it's not there. It's then I remember where I am. In Las Pistolas. In a tall building. Surrounded by gunslingers. The knock comes again. My body aches from the sudden comfort of a feather bed. I drag myself up and tie on a robe to answer. It's a messenger, standing in the open elevator. He hands me a slip of paper, tips his cap, and descends in the elevator. It's from Nico, asking me to meet him at the edge of town, at a practice field where they train new gunslingers. 
The practice field is surrounded on four sides by artificial dunes that have been built up to absorb stray shots. This must be where they train new gunslingers. But now it's early, and no one else is here. The sun hasn't yet broken, but the light beyond the eastern dune vibrates, hinting at the heat of the coming day. For now, the air is cool, the sky a milky blue. Nico is waiting for me. He chews a piece of straw and watches the horizon. Then he sees me and breaks into a smile. How was your first night in Las Pistolas? I was so tired I went right to sleep, I lie. Oh, you didn't read Dad's journal? I wasn't ready. He nods and puts his hand on my shoulder. So why are we here? All business. I like that. I just want to know why I didn't have time to have a bath this morning. He laughs. <laughs> because, he says, today is your first lesson as a gunslinger. My first instinct is to reject what he said. I'm a bullet catcher, I want to say. No, I think. No, I'm not that either. Nico produces a small hand-carved wooden box. On the top are those same initials from the journal. E.M. He opens the lid and inside there are two guns. They don't look like anything special. I know from trying to fix up my own little gun that they have been shot many times. That they have been broken, but fixed. That no amount of polish could get out all the scratches and wear. Go on, Nico says, pushing the box toward me. Take them. A part of me wants to refuse the part of me that still thinks I'm a bullet catcher. But these belonged to my father. I pick one up and hold it in my hand, and I can feel the small depressions in the wood handle where my father must have held it. I grip the handle hard, and I can feel my father's heartbeat through the wood. And then I realize it's only my own pulse. But it doesn't matter. It's heavy, I say. It won't be after you get used to it. Nico gives me a belt and holsters. The gun fits perfectly. Bullets line the bandoliers that I've strapped across my body. I run a finger over the polished brass tips, and it feels like there's no going back now. We're going to play gunslingers and bullet catchers, he says. You'll be the gunslinger, and I'll be the one you're trying to kill. You want me to shoot at you? He smiles. Don't worry, you won't hit me. He reaches into his coat pocket, reveals a mechanical glove, and pulls it over his ungloved hand. It looks like the bullet-catching glove he built when we were children. Only all grown up, just like him. A brass exoskeleton stretches along the back of it, with sharp metal arching over his fingers. He pushes a button and it hums with energy. I've been working on it since we were kids. It catches bullets, I say. Odd. You remember. How could I forget? So it goes without saying that if you make me break a sweat, I'll be impressed. He turns and marches across the practice field. With his back to me, walking with the ease and surety of a teacher, 
the ends of his long coat picked up by the wind, I could mistake him for the bullet catcher. It's amazing how time changes people. None of us are who we were yesterday. And what would our younger selves think of the people we've become? I like a story that will take me to extremes. And nothing says extreme quite like The Last City, a new Wondery podcast available now. Set in 2072, the city of Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image, which, given its promise of being a miraculous green haven in a climate-ravaged world, shouldn't be too hard to sell, but things are not always as perfect and shiny as we'd like to believe. When she stumbles upon a dark secret that could lead to the downfall of Pura's existence if revealed, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this, talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Nico smiles more than he used to. But there's something behind his smile. A splinter just below the skin. Shoot at where I'm going to be, he calls. Not where I am. When you're ready. The guns are heavy, but training with the bullet catcher has made me strong. I pull the guns from their holsters, point them at Nico, but I can't bring myself to shoot, even though he has the bullet catching glove. You worry too much. I pull back the hammer and fire far wide. He puts his hands on his hips and taps the ground with the toe of his boot. I swallow hard. The bullet catcher told me not to point a gun at a person unless I meant to kill them. But Nico tells me not to worry, and I've put my trust in him. I aim at Nico and fire. He easily swats the bullet out of the way. I let out my breath. He waves me on, and this time I take up the challenge. At first, I'm too slow, and my aim isn't sharp enough to make him work. He swats lazily at the bullets. Don't react, he yells. Act! Sweat pours down my face. I blink it away, reload. I tap the triggers faster. My accuracy tightens. The gulf between Nico's movements and my own converge, moving closer until the difference is so minute anyone watching would have difficulty judging which one of us moves first. We synchronize. We could almost be dancing. I keep going not feeling the weight of the guns. My hands and feet and fingers work automatically. I find the spot where I know he'll be in a moment's time and fire. His eyes go wide. 
He grunts, trying to change direction. Every muscle in his face clenches in concentration. At the last moment, he reaches out and swats away the bullet. Just in time. The bullet passes around him, through the tail of his coat. Everything stops. There's just the sounds of our hard breathing and the sizzle of the desert floor as the sun begins to rise. Well done, he says, coming over to me. You've made more work for the tailor. He puts his finger through the bullet hole in his duster. Looking skyward, he follows the rising sun for a moment with his eyes and takes a big breath. Enough for now? I nod. He takes off the glove and puts it back in his pocket. The adrenaline is starting to wear off, and I think how strange his invention is. When I was young, I thought his bullet-catching glove was a kind of magic. But after spending so many long months training with the bullet catcher, doing the real thing, Nico's glove seems, I don't know, like cheating. And the part of me that still thinks she's a bullet catcher hates it. Breakfast then, he says, beaming. I look up at him and trace the wound on his cheek that I gave him that night in the bruise. My old habit of tracing scars. He catches my hand, gives it a gentle squeeze, and lets it down. A man meets us as we cross back into town. He's dressed almost all in black. Black coat, black shirt, black waistcoat, black trousers, black boots. He wears a black leather glove over his shooting hand, like Nico. Even the chain of his fob watch is blackered black. He wears a tie. The only person I've ever seen do so who wasn't a traveling salesman. And I can tell from this stranger's demeanor that he's no traveling salesman. He hides his nose and mouth behind a bandana, like he's robbing a bank. And as he approaches us, his eyes are locked on me, as though he's trying to see into my heart. Sis, this is Cloak. Cloak, this is Emma. My sister I've told you all about. I gathered as much. Then he turns to me and says, It's a pleasure, ma'am. I nod in return. Then he whispers something into Nico's ear, holding onto his arm to draw him close. There's something I just don't trust. But his eyes are beautiful, big and pale gray. He keeps those big eyes on me as he whispers into my brother's ear. Nico turns to me and says, Sorry, Emma. Duty calls. I'll have to leave you here. What about breakfast? Next time, he says, and heads off with Cloak down the wide, even road, bustling with people and coaches and horses and the occasional motorized buggy toward the industrial end of town. I'm suddenly on my own. For the first time in a long time, I have no schedule. I'm starving. I head for the first familiar place I find, the saloon. After all those years living and working in Dimitri's, any saloon feels like home. Even though it's still early, a few people have gathered inside to eat and drink. A couple mean-looking gunslingers stand together at the bar, chatting with the bartender. 
A piano player cracks his knuckles while eating a plate of eggs, balanced on the closed lid of his piano keys. And in the corner, removed from everyone else, is a gathering of older, almost ancient gunslingers. I'm comfortable among the old men and women who typically fill up a saloon before midday, whose hands don't stop shaking for nothing. The people who couldn't grip a gun if their lives depended on it. A part of me is gladdened to find something familiar in this town, where I'm new and still feel very much like an outsider. As soon as I sit, the bartender hurries out from behind the bar to take my order. Good morning, Miss Moreno, he says. I am honored that you would choose my humble saloon to break from the sun. Will you be eating? I was hoping for breakfast. Wonderful. My wife fries a mean egg, and we have snakebite, whiskey, and water. Ice cold if you prefer. I ask for eggs and water, and the bartender quickly retreats to the kitchen to give his wife my order. She pops her head out to see that it's really me, and then ducks back into the kitchen to cook. Nico must have spread the word that I was in town, and, truth be told, I'm a bit embarrassed to be waited on like this. But it's better than the cold shoulder, I suppose. And when breakfast arrives, it really is as good as the bartender advertised. He hovers nervously until I give my compliments to the food. Then he smiles big. Tell your brother, he says, departing. From the corner of the saloon, the old gunslingers watch me and chatter among themselves. When they notice me looking at them, one of them stands, a little shakily, and waves me over. I point to myself and mouth, me? Yes, you, darling, the old woman says. Get over here so we can have a proper look at you. There are six of them, crowded around a card table, and they clear a little spot for me. The name's Hartwright, the woman who hailed me says, holding out her hand. Now that I'm closer, I see that there's a knife scar that runs diagonally down her left cheek. She has a mouthful of gold teeth, seven fingers, and two deep brown eyes. Her shooter, a rusted antique, sits by her drink on the table. It looks like it hasn't been used in a long time. Emma, I say and shake. Yes, darling, we know. This is my posse. We call ourselves the good-for-nothings, on account that Nico and Cloak and the rest of the youngins that run this town nowadays think that's all we're good for. <laughs> Nothing. Come on and take a seat. We were just telling old stories, she says, pouring snakebite with a shaky hand into her glass. It spills everywhere, but no one seems to mind. Adventures we went on, people we fell in love with. Tall tales, that sort of thing. Rusty here just finished telling us how once he got himself so full of snake bite, he kissed a horse. The good-for-nothings laugh, and the man I assume to be Rusty, though his hair has gone all gray, stands and takes a small bow. So, Hartwright says, turning her attention back to me. What sort of story do you have for us? Story? I don't think I have any stories. But you must have, she says. No one ends up in Las Pistolas by accident. And we don't get too hung up on the truth anyway. 
Spice it up. Put some magic in it. Their six pairs of eyes stare at me, waiting. Their wrinkles have bunched up into smiles of anticipation. I don't dare tell them about the bullet catcher. Who knows how these grizzled gunslingers would react, knowing I had trained with him. So I tell them about a time, back in sand, when I had to use a broken bottle to fight off a horde of drunks who were starting to get handsy. I have a million stories like that. I... Hartwright says when I'm done. Very dramatic. Though I prefer a funny story myself. Or something with a bit of romance. And she fills a glass with snake bite and pushes it toward me. It's pretty early, I tell her. Or very late, she says. Go on, pick it up. I do. The old gunslingers raise their glasses. To Emma Moreno, thank you for the story. And they toss back their drinks. I do the same. It stings all the way down. But I think I just made a friend. By midday, most of the old gunslingers are passed out or gone home. Hartwright remains. Her hat is low on her head, and she leans back in her chair to keep herself upright. Her eyes are a bit glassy, but sharp. A finger of snakebite is all that's left. I'd like to hear another story, I tell her. What kind of story you have in mind? I want to know where the water comes from. She fixes me with a hard stare. Now, why do you want to go poking your head into a thing like that? I lean closer and say, Because I get suspicious if I ask a straight question and get a crooked answer. She nods, takes a pencil from her pocket, and starts scribbling on a piece of paper. You're different than your brother, she says, handing me the paper. You're curious. I'd be careful. It might get you in trouble. The note is a set of directions and an address. They lead me across town to the industrial district, where the smog hangs heavy over the belching smokestacks. Up close, the factories seem almost animated, breathing out the sooty air. In this part of town, I'm reminded that not everyone in Las Pistolas is a gunslinger. Gunslingers don't stoke the fires in the factories or work the assembly lines. Gunslingers don't work the markets or saloons. I flag down a man in a dirty flannel shirt. He wears a pair of goggles pulled up on top of his head. Two black rings of coal dust encircle his eyes. I show him the piece of paper Hartwright gave me. He looks from the paper to me, blinks, and seems to suddenly realize who I am. His eyes lower quickly and he points down the street. The big one, he says, then shuffles off quickly. I enter the factory through the service entrance where motorized buggies and horse-drawn carts bustle in and out, their flatbeds loaded high and their loads hidden under canvas. Inside, the machines groan. Operators stand over giant presses that shape sheets of metal into huge tubes. 
There's a small army of children sitting on stools between rows of crates. In one crate are the rivets. They take them one at a time, dab polish on the end of a finger, and rub the metal until it shines. Then they deposit the polished rivets in the crate on the other side. I'm reminded of the factory owners who frequented the orphanage, looking for cheap labor and small hands. Where did these children come from? Where are their homes? Everyone seems focused on their work, and I easily go unnoticed. I move through the factory as though I'm supposed to be there and no one says anything. Near the middle of the factory floor, a sooty iron staircase rises to a foreman's office, positioned so that it can look down on the workers below. A man with a bandana tied around his forehead and his eyes locked on a sheaf of papers in his hands, descends the stairs and I duck out of sight until he passes. I climb the stairs and peek through the window into the foreman's office. Empty. The door is unlocked and I slip inside. The foreman's desk is cluttered with what looks like engineering plans. There is a map of the Southland marked with red lines that crisscross the desert, connecting many of the small towns. I know the lines aren't roads. Could they be where they plan on laying the water pipes? Even still, nothing about the map tells me where the water is coming from. A hand grabs my shoulder and spins me around. It's the man Nico called Cloak. His sharp gray eyes cut into me. His gun is in his hand. He pushes the barrel into my gut and growls, Just what the hell do you think you're doing here? He says it flatly. It's an accusation, not a question. I'm looking for Nico. You're looking in the wrong place. He grabs me by the collar of my shirt and hauls me away. You're listening to Bullet Catcher Season 1 by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. Bullet Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Lydia Shama. And executive produced by Julian Yap and Molly Barton. Performed by Inez Del Castillo. Audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Corey Barton. 
original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi, with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch. Cover art by Christine Barcelona.